met. My name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. And to everybody join us, joining us online, I'm so glad you've joined us today. Um, and we love you and we miss you. And we're glad we're connecting with you this way. We especially look forward to the time when you're back here with us physically. Um, so let me begin today by making this truth claim. Here it is. It's pretty simple, but it's, it's a big idea. If you want to understand humanity, you must study God. If you want to understand humanity, you must study God. And it follows then that if you want to truly know yourself, you must know God. We were, after all, according to Scripture, created in the image of God. Far too often people turn this on its head. We think that to understand God, we must look within. We try to figure out how God fits in our story rather than trying to figure out how we fit in God's story. And when we do this, when we try to find the ultimate answers for life inside ourselves, when we define everything in life by our lived stories, we miss the possibility of connecting to a power infinitely greater than ourselves. We miss connecting to the source of life itself, the one in whom we find our true identity, the one whose story should inform everything in our story, the one in whom we find everything we need to live life as it was meant to be lived. I strongly suggest that if we want to figure out what our lives should be about, that we must begin by studying God, by knowing God, and that we must strive to do this. So last week, as we introduced this series and this first trimester of 2021, I, in order to offer a compare and contrast between God's story and stories that are being told in our culture today, I introduced three secular macro-narratives and three secular micro-narratives that are prevalent in our culture. These are just a few of the kinds of stories that are being told and lived in our world today. In coming weeks, we're going to contrast some other stories that are being told and lived with the story of God as told in Scripture. So in brief, the three macro-narratives we discussed last week are, first of all, the pessimistic secular story. The pessimistic secular story says that the universe and life came into existence with no divine cause or purpose, and therefore life has no ultimate purpose. Someday, everything will run out of energy, and it won't matter that we ever existed. The optimistic secular story uh, agrees with its pessimistic cousin that life came into existence by a cosmic accident, but tells us that we can assign our own meaning to life and work toward creating the conditions necessary for human flourishing. But again, this story ends when our lives end. There is no ultimate meaning behind human existence and no life beyond this life. Third, there's the story of pluralistic and moral therapeutic spirituality. I know that's a mouthful, and I'm going to speak to this for a little bit today, so I'll, I'll explain uh, 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 what this means. It's obvious on its face, but 
Um, this, when we talk about it being pluralistic, we're saying there are a number of versions of this story. When we talk about it being moral, this is an attempt by sincere people to be good and do good. And we, when we talk about therapeutic, we're talking about ultimately its purpose is to make us feel better. And obviously when we talk about spirituality, we're talking about an attempt to connect to something uh, that's divine. So this is the story of pluralistic and moral therapeutic spirituality. This story does not discount the prevalent secular story for the emergence of life, yet sees God or some kind of divine force as essential. This story says that we need God in some form to give life meaning, morality, and significance, but that God is not found by looking outside of ourselves, but found rather by looking in ourselves so that we can find the divine spark, one might say, that helps us live our best lives. You hear this kind of language quite frequently in our world today. Sincere people, good people, trying to figure life out, looking within for the divine spark. The person who lives this story might very well say something like this, I'm uh, very spiritual, but I'm not religious. I think all of us kind of understand that story. Now, the three micro stories that we mentioned last week are quickly, because I'm going to come back to the one I was just speaking about, the story of achievement, which says we are what we accomplish, the story of consumerism, which says we are what we have, or the story of romance that says we find happiness when we find just the right person to love. The story I want to focus on for a few moments here is the story of pluralistic and moral therapeutic spirituality because of the many forms in which it shows up in our culture. This story basically says, and one has to generalize in a forum like this with time limitations, but this story basically says that you can define God or the divine any way you like as long as it works for you. How does it make you feel? I hear this so common in the emotional reasoning that seems to inform so much of people's thought today, which is, I feel, and it seems like anything anybody puts after the words I feel should be accepted as if it's a truth claim, just because somebody started by saying, I feel. So there, again, are, and, 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 and so as long as it works for you, this story says, then it must be a good story. And so we can talk about how what this looks like when taken to its logical extreme, and I'll do that just for a, in a moment. But then I'm going to come back and talk about how that, again, very good and sincere people, without probably thinking through where this goes to its logical extreme, are living this story. There's a great clip. Uh, I've used it several times over the years from a movie called A Mighty Wind, which gives you an absurd example of what it looks like when someone takes this story to its logical extreme. Check this out, and you're allowed to smile. What's happening here? What, can you run your hand over yeah. that? Yes, hold on just hold a on. second. What are you getting? Well, I'm getting a bounce, mm -hmm. um, but there's a lightness within it as well. Interesting. Yeah. You know, honey, it's a yeah. very tricky color, and I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. Terry and I worship an unconventional deity, the power of another dimension. 
Now, you're not going to read about this dimension in a book or in a magazine or uh, in a newspaper uh, because it doesn't exist anywhere except in my own mind. Through our ceremonies and our rituals, we have witnessed firsthand the awesome and vibratory power of color. We experience it as alive and constantly shaping our experience. And we believe that this saturated energy is the basis of all creation. We are Wink, W-I-N-C, witches in nature's colors. Wink. <laughs> now, I know the word witch may be a problem for some of you. The word has a lot of silly connotations. Uh, no, ladies and gentlemen, we do not ride around on broomsticks and wear pointy hats. Well, we don't ride on broomsticks. This is not an occult science. This is not one of those crazy uh, systems of uh, divination and astrology. That stuff's hooey, and you got to have a screw loose to go in for that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. our, our, our beliefs are fairly commonplace and simple to understand. Humankind is simply materialized color operating on the 49th vibration. You would uh, make that conclusion walking down the street or going to the store. Moral, therapeutic, spirituality story lived out to its logical end. You can make up any kind of God you want to as long as it makes you feel better. But let me mention a not-so-absurd example and the kind of thing that's really common in the conversation of our culture now. In Habits of the Heart, the sociologist Robert Bella tells of how he interviewed a woman whose faith has become typical of a growing brand of spirituality in, in our culture. Here's what he wrote. Sheila Larson is a young nurse who has received a good deal of therapy and describes her faith as Sheilaism. I believe in God, Sheila says. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. Sheila's faith has some tenets beyond belief in God, though, not many. In defining what she calls my own Sheilaism, she said, it's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. You know, I guess, take care of each other. I think God would want us to take care of each other. I've met a lot of Sheilas over the years, sincere people who are doing the best they can, like the rest of us are, trying to figure life out, People who sense the need to connect to God but make the mistake of trying to create God in their image instead of beginning their story with the teaching of Scripture that we were created in the image of God and purposed by God. My message to Sheila is that the story of God described in Scripture, the God who has been believed in and worshipped and served by countless people over thousands of years of human history, that God is a better God than any small g God that we can make up or find within ourselves. I'd rather connect to the divine cause of the universe, the creator of humanity, than find the divine spark of energy within me. When we connect to the God described in Scripture, we connect to the God who in the beginning said, let there be light and there was light. That, my friends, is a divine spark. That 
is spiritual energy. That is a better God than any God we could possibly make up or find in ourselves. Now, when we're in relationship with the God described in Scripture, we have everything we need to live the life we were meant to live. I've been focusing recently, as I hope that some of you are, hopefully you're reading Dallas Willard's book based on the 23rd Psalm called... um, I actually can't remember what it's called, but it's the recommended reading for the trimester. Started reading it last summer and started thinking a lot about the 23rd Psalm and, 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 and particularly on the opening words to which the rest of the Psalm responds, which simply say, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Now, if you read it quickly, you, you can miss what's being said here. First of all, it's important to to know who the Lord is. The Lord described here is something infinitely more powerful than anything we can find in ourselves or any God we could possibly make up. The word Lord in this passage is one of the names most commonly used in Scripture to describe God. The word in Hebrew is Yahweh, or sometimes translated Jehovah. The name means self-subsistent, eternal being, the one who does not depend on anyone or anything else for existence, but who is the singular source of life itself. So now, having heard that, think about this. The Lord, this Lord, the source of life itself is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Now this makes perfect sense actually, because if I know God, if I know that God, I have everything I need. Or we could say, no God, no lack. As the Apostle Peter wrote in the New Testament, he said, His divine power has given us Everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him. What is a godly life? A godly life is a life that reflects the God who created us. It's a life that reflects who He is. And we're told, listen to the possibility here, guys, His divine power. And I'm going to talk about who He is here in a little while. But we need to remember His divine power has given us everything we need to live a life that reflects who He is through our knowledge of Him. He has given us His great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Now see, I'm not telling you that you can't find a divine spark in you. But let me tell you that it is not sourced in yourself. The divine spark starts outside of ourself and it's found in a person. And that person is God. And God, if we will believe in Him and ask Him to, will actually come and live in us so that we can participate in His divine nature. And I'm telling you that that story of God is a better story of God than any of us could possibly make up. Now, what kind of God is this? What kind of Lord is this? 
Well, I, last week I read this definition from the great Methodist theologian from many, many years ago named Adam Clark. I just love his attempt to, after studying Scripture and in concert with the understanding and experience of the Christian church for 2,000 years to try to describe the God of Scripture. It's just beautiful. The, here it is. The eternal, independent, and self-existent being. The being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without foreign motive or influence. He who is absolute in dominion, the most pure, the most simple, the most spiritual of all essences, infinitely benevolent, beneficent, true and holy, the cause of all being, the upholder of all things, infinitely happy because infinitely perfect and eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing he has made, illimitable in his immensity, inconceivable in his mode of existence, and indescribable in his essence, known fully only by himself because an infinite mind can only be comprehended by itself. In a word, a being who from his infinite wisdom cannot err or be deceived and from his infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally just, right, and kind. My friends, this is not a God to be trifled with. This is not a God who exists to be at our beck and call and help us live a better life. This is a God to be worshipped. This is a God to be loved. This is a God to be served. This is a God to be obeyed. And we must find ourselves in Him and find our story in His story. How small is our possibility when we start our story with ourselves rather than starting our story with a God like that. And as I, as I think about this, I, the, the words as I was writing this this, this week, as I was writing it this week, frankly, just feeling the Holy Spirit as I wrote it, I couldn't help but think of the eighth psalm that just starts out as a shout of praise. Lord, the Lord I just described, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have put in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. I mean, really, guys, when you get this great big picture of God, you have to stand in humility and offer praise and say, who in the world am I that you, being who you are, would care about me? But somehow he does. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior. All the day long. This, my friends, is where we must find our story. One of the things that's so important for us is to not attempt to make God in our image. What a tragic thing to make God like us. It's so important that we don't try to conceive of a God who is what we want Him to be or does what we think He should do. I mean, the arrogance. It's amazing. We must see Him as He is and define reality accordingly. We start with Him and we define everything else according to what we know about Him. It's like Isaiah, the prophet said, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? 
I've got old songs on my mind today. Here's one from my youth. It says, He is the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after your way. How many of you ever heard that song sometime from your past? Well, it's a, it's a pretty little song, but it has a great purpose. Listen, there's a lot of clay in the world today who are trying to tell the potter what the, whatever is being made should look like. And it's a tragic mistake. Oh, the foolishness of the clay saying to the potter, no, you don't really know what you're doing. Let me tell you what you should do. If we're not careful, we'll find ourselves saying to ourselves and others what God should be like. Why would God allow this or that? Why would God ask for this? Why would God do that? We want God to do what we would do in the world, yet we are not God. And again, it is ridiculous to try to define God in our image. We start with God. We start with God. We start with God. We start with God and define everything else in our lives by who He is and by trying to understand His story. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't ask questions. Scripture is full and is perfectly appropriate for us to to ask questions and to research and to study science and to study. All truth is God's truth. Two plus two is true. Two plus two equals four is true regardless who said it. So we're not afraid of truth. We search for truth. But we begin with the truth, which is found in the person of God himself. And we define everything else in the world by who he is. So... Simply put, we have a better story than any other story being told. More importantly, we have a true story. The Christian story is centered around a good God who created the universe and people out of His love. A God who gave people dignity and purpose and free will. And who, when people decided to reject His good plan for them, enacted a self-sacrificial plan to show up on this planet to bring people back to Himself and His purposes. The Christian story then centers on God, who became a person named Jesus, whose life, death, resurrection, and exaltation offers us the possibility, if we believe in Him, of redemption and restoration to what God wanted for us in the beginning. I don't have time today to offer the wealth of evidence that this story is true, though all the evidence tells it it is. By the way, if you're new to us, we spend a lot of time around here talking about the truth of the story. What I really want to emphasize today, though, is just it's a better story. It's a better story. Don't get sucked up into lesser stories. It's a better story than the story that was told by pagans thousands of years which Scripture began to be written to to, uh, uh, say this is what God's really like and it's a better story that's being told than, than the story being told by secularists today regardless how well intentioned. We need to understand the story of God and find our place in it. As N.T. Wright, the great New Testament scholar, wrote, he was writing really about something else, but he he said something that I think is worth reading. He said, Paul had to teach the Corinthian church, and frankly, this is what I'm trying to teach the life Christian church, to think within the biblical narrative, to see themselves as actors within the ongoing scriptural drama, to allow their erstwhile pagan thought forms to be transformed by a biblically-based renewal of the mind. I am, frankly, here is my agenda, I am trying to teach us to think 
within the biblical narrative to find our story in the story of God and to convince, for some of us, to shake us a little bit to realize that we're buying into narratives that are less than. But the story of God is, well, it's more than more than we could ever imagine. So, living our best story begins with knowing God. Let me hammer this for a little bit. So, we need to know about God definitionally. In other words, as best we can, learning from those who've studied Scripture for thousands of years, including those, when you're talking about biblical theism, this would include our, our Jewish friends and their understanding of God is based in, in their Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. We need to listen to that which has been studied and around which there's consensus about what Scripture teaches about who God is. So we need to know about Him definitionally, but we need to and can know Him experientially as well, maybe even more importantly. And oftentimes these knowings come hand in hand. In other words, as we study God, if we do it properly, we can come to know God. Last week we, under, we, we, we talked about how God cannot be understood exhaustively, but that because He wants to be in relationship with us, He has made Himself known to us. So to know Him, it helps us to study Him, but we must study Him in order to know Him. This is important. We're not just interested in learning about God. We're interested in knowing God. So we study Him to know Him. In a letter to his younger sister, Vincent Van Gogh wrote this, You read books to borrow therefrom the force to stimulate your activity. But I read books searching for the man who has written them. And I encourage all of us that this is how we need to approach the study of God, including and especially the reading of Scripture where we find the story of God. We read Scripture in order to know the God who inspired it. And as we study Him, we come to know Him. I love the words of J.I. Packer in his classic, which I highly recommend to you, called Knowing God. He says, what happens as you're studying and attempting to know God is, and in relationship with Him is that the Almighty Creator, the Lord of hosts, the great God before whom the nations are as a drop of, in a bucket comes to you and begins to talk to you through the words and truths of Holy Scripture. Perhaps you've been acquainted with the Bible and Christian truth for many years and it has meant little to you. But one day you wake up to the fact that God is actually speaking to you, you, through the biblical message. You come to realize as you listen that God is actually opening His heart to you, making friends with you, and enlisting you as a colleague, a covenant partner. It is a staggering thing, but it is true. The relationship in which sinful human beings know God is one in which God, so to speak, takes them onto His team to be henceforth His fellow workers and personal friends. See, we can actually know God. It doesn't mean that we know everything about God. But we know God and He continues as we know Him to reveal Himself to us more and more and in that context reveal ourselves to ourselves more and more. So, how do we study God? Briefly, God reveals Himself to us in two primary ways if we were to offer categories. 
He reveals himself, first of all, in general revelation, and then secondly, in special revelation. And I'll talk about a subset of that called illumination in a moment. Is everybody doing okay? Everybody's alive, everybody's awake, everybody's listening. I'm going to be kind of teachy here for a few minutes, okay? Do you mind if I teach you? And if we actually learn something that might matter in our lives this week, I hope not. You know that's what you're going to get when you show up with me most of the time. So, first of all, general revelation refers to God's self-disclosure in creation and the human conscience. This is kind of theology 101, okay? General revelation refers to God's self-disclosure in creation of the human conscience. It's important for you to think about this. Though the God that we serve is out there beyond us, because He loves us and because He created us for certain purposes, He, he, he shows up in certain ways on this planet. If you please, he kind of says, ta-da, here I am. Here's what I'm like. And one of the ways he does this is he does this through general revelation, which means that we see something of God in the things he has made. And we also, we know something of God just as human beings around things like having a sense of, of, of the knowledge of good and evil, of right and wrong, which tells us there's a moral lawgiver someplace. But that's got, getting off into apologetics, which I don't want to do today. Here's what Psalm 19 says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their, their words to the ends of the world. In the New Testament, Paul wrote to the Romans, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. See, we are aware of God when we watch the sunrise or see the beauty in nature, or experience the love of another person, or hold a newborn baby in our hands. We are aware of God in, in the quietness of our own hearts, where we know that there is something or someone greater than ourselves. We are aware of God, that when we know that some things are right and other things are wrong, that there is a moral law that comes from outside of ourselves. In these and many other ways, God reveals Himself to us. So that's general revelation, in very broadly speaking. Speaking. Then there's special revelation. Special revelation refers uh, to, to ways that are very specific, almost events, if you please, in which God has, has attempted to show himself to us. And special revelation refers to God's specific revelation through his word, scripture, and the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, and God's word specifically to us. When God, as I'll discuss in a moment, illuminates something from his word in our lives, in our present day reality. Two further theological terms that are important to, to, to see as kind of a subset of special revelation are the words inspiration and illumination inspiration and illumination. So inspiration refers to the process that God used through the Holy Spirit to inspire people to write His Word, Scripture. God worked with and through a wide diversity of human authors over a long period of time to reveal much of Himself in His Word. 
Paul wrote to Timothy, first, second Timothy three fifteen. He said, all scripture is God breathed. The King James version says all scripture is inspired. Literally, it means it's God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Let me offer a contrast. We would say, if you read the works of Shakespeare, which I just happened for the first time ever, I'm embarrassed to say, to read Hamlet just a few weeks ago. When you read the words of Shakespeare, you could say that Shakespeare was inspired. But you have to say that Shakespeare was inspired small I, Because when you read the words of Scripture, somehow you're able to make a distinction between Shakespeare's inspiration and the inspiration of Scripture. Here's an example you'll all relate to. I've presided over many more funerals than I would ever care uh, to. Uh, that's part of my responsibility and part of what I do, although uh, uh, there's, we have a team of pastors who would do a great job of that as well. But nonetheless, here's the deal. You can read a piece of Shakespeare in a funeral and appreciate the words. But it's a totally different experience than when someone stands up and reads, let's say, the 23rd Psalm. You know that. I, I don't know how to prove that except to say we know that. You hear about atheists, people who don't even believe in God, sitting at the, at the, at the bedside of, of a loved one who's dying, reading Scripture. Why? Because when we read it, somehow or another, there's a witness in our spirit that this is the capital I, inspired Word of God. But then there's another piece to this, and it's called illumination. Illumination refers to what the Holy Spirit does in us as we read the inspired Word of God. All of a sudden, words written thousands of years ago become God's Word to us in that moment. So in other words, you may have heard the 23rd Psalm read hundreds of time, times in your life. But if at some point... You may have an experience where the Holy Spirit illuminates the inspired word to you where all of a sudden, in a way that you can't even describe, you grasp the sense that the Lord is your shepherd and that you lack nothing. Sometimes those are just words that may inspire us, but other times it becomes illumination where the Holy Spirit makes that real in our lives. And that's an act of special revelation. And I encourage you that when you read Scripture and when you pray, that you ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate the inspired Word to you so all of a sudden you are having a sense of actually knowing God. Now, let me close with this. I'm not, don't get too excited about the close. This is the runway to the close. This is my last big point. So, who is this God that we're wanting to know? Who is this God whose story we want to find our story in? Who is this God that for us, we define everything else in our lives by who He is and what He's revealed about Himself to us and about the purpose of humanity to us? I want to grab a, 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 a very common, commonly worded definition 
uh, that, that's an attempt by scholars to try to describe God in just a few words. And, and I want to speak to it for, for the rest of our time today. Here it is. It's God is, and I started on this last week and I told you I'd complete it this week. God is infinite and personal, triune, transcendent and imminent, omniscient, sovereign, and good. Okay? So this is the God, this is the God whose story should inform, who he is, what he said, what he wants should inform everything about our lives. First of all, God is infinite and personal. We talked about that at some length last week. God is infinite, meaning that in part that he is beyond scope and measure and understanding. He is unknowable and he is in a way that nothing else is. He described himself simply as the I am. Who are you, God asked Moses, to which he said, I am. Am. I simply am. And Jesus described himself in the same way. So he's infinite, yet he is personal, meaning in part that he is a person. And because he is a person, he can be known, not fully known, but known. To know God then is to know more than he exists, but to know him as we know a person. God is infinite and personal. God is also transcendent and imminent. I love to talk about God's transcendence because it, this is contrasted, guys, to the, to the, uh, pluralistic, moral, therapeutic spirituality that's so prevalent in our day. The folks who follow that narrative have a very small, small g, God. But here's what we understand when we talk about God's transcendence. This is the witness of Scripture and those who've studied it over thousands of years. God is outside of and beyond the world He has created. If you could draw a circle around everything that we know exists, God is outside of that circle. Imagine being in a planetarium or something, you know, looking up at the ceiling where they're trying to show you everything that we know about the universe. If you could get up there and draw a circle around all of that, this is very important. God is outside of the circle. Look at anything in the circle. God is not it. And thank God for that because He's bigger than our world and therefore He's able to save our world from itself. God is not one with the world. Do not limit God to being one with the world. He is otherworldly. To say that He's one with the world is to make Him one with what is good and evil. It is to assign to Him things He is not. He is good, and He has and will deal with evil. And if the world would cease to exist, God would not cease to exist. Our God is a God to be worshipped. Don't confuse Him with one of us. He is transcendent. For instance, God is not the tree. God created the tree. God can choose to be present in the tree if He wants to. But God is not the tree. God is transcendent transcendent. Yet, he's also imminent. Though God is not one with the created world, he is present in it. He is everywhere. But this is a choice that he makes. So whereas the pantheist would say that God is one with creation, and uh, the deist would say that once God created the world, he removed himself from it, the biblical theist 
would say that God is distinct from the world He created, yet present in us. Now, it's important when you talk about God being imminent that you you spell it properly so that you can define it properly. He is not imminent. I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T, which means something that is about to happen. That's not the proper theological term. The proper theological term is that God is imminent. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, which means nearby or present. So here's the beauty, is that though God is outside of the world and greater than the world, He so loved the world that He has shown up in it. He has shown up in it in many ways since its beginning. And He's present in it now and all kinds of ways. This is why the psalmist can speak of a transcendent God like this. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. He's transcendent. He's imminent. He's present in our world because He chose to be and He loves us then we can say that God is omniscient. To say that God is omniscient is to say that God is all-knowing. As the theologian Wayne Grudem said, God fully knows Himself and all things possible in one simple and eternal act. As Job said, God has perfect knowledge. As John wrote in the New Testament, He knows everything. He knows everything. He knows everything, including He knows you. And the fact that He knows you is a good thing. We should celebrate the fact that He does because He loves us. And even even in, in spite of all of our stuff and all the stuff that we know He knows about us that we don't really want anybody else in the world to know, the fact that He knows it is a good thing because He loves us. This is why, why, why uh, David wrote, Lord, you've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. For you, you have a purpose. You saw me and you have a purpose for me. And, and, and you, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days are ordained from me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. And then we can say God is sovereign. Sovereignty speaks to God's omnipotence. When we say that God is omnipotent, we're saying that God is all-powerful and that He is able to do whatever He wants to do. God's sovereignty also refers to the fact that He is engaged in what's going on in his world, in our lives, and that he's determined to be the sovereign or to rule over the events of history and our individual stories. He will have the final say, and his world will end up to be the world he wants it to be. You say, perhaps you might say, how is that relevant to me sitting here in West Orange right now? Well, I I hope that you see all kinds of ways that's relevant for you. But what if you begin to view current events through that lens? God is sovereign. Because like most of us, regardless which side you're on as it concerns what's happening in our country right now, politically and so on, it's 
it's difficult to read the news and not be terribly troubled. But, but see, here's something that you need to think about. You can see the news as bad as it may be and go to bed at night and sleep comfortably because you know what? God is still God. God is sovereign. God didn't stop being God. Based on what's happening in American politics, God is not worried. God is not afraid. God is not surprised. I mean, maybe your small G God you're looking for in yourself, maybe there's something else going on there. But the God of the universe, my friends, is sovereign and he hasn't somehow forgotten to do his job because human beings are messing things up in all kinds of ways. It's not like God said, well, I guess I'm just not going to be God anymore and the whole world's going to go to hell in a handbasket. That's not His plan. His plan is to redeem us. His plan is to deal with evil. His plan is to turn evil to good. His plan is to end up in the end with the world that He wanted when He made it. His plan is to somehow work in our lives and to sort things out and to take us to the future He destined for us when He saw us in our mother's womb. He's not finished. It's not over. Don't quit. Don't give up. You have to have a bigger vision of God. That's how God's story impacts our story. This is a big God. The only thing that limits God's sovereignty is God's character. That is to say, he will only use his power to do things that ultimately manifest his love. Because finally, God is good. See? And this is the prime statement about God's character, from which all other aspects of his character flow. Attributes like love and holiness flow from his goodness. Now, this has moral implications that are really important, and I wish I had more time to get into today. But how do we determine then, if we're living out of God's story, how do we determine what good is? Do we do it by emotional reasoning? I feel, I feel like, I feel like God wouldn't want, I feel like that's not right, I feel, is that how we determine what good is? The short answer to that is no. Unless your your emotional reasoning has been informed by the story of God and the teachings of Scripture, the things that are good are the things that God approves. The things that are good are the things God say are good. We don't get to make Him in our image, and we don't get to tell Him how He should determine what good is based on how we feel or what's being said in the media or what Hollywood's saying or what some political leader's saying. They don't get to decide what good is. God is the only one, Jesus said, who is good. And out of his good character comes his judgment as to what's good and what's not good. Now that's a life changer, guys. Because you don't get to decide what good is. A good God 
decides what good is based on his plan, based on his character. And sometimes when we don't get that, which is understandable, we're not going to get everything about God. We just have to trust him and do our best to believe him, to worship him, to love him, to serve him, to obey him, and to know that this God, who's as big as the one I've described, he's working everything out. But see, the other thing then is, the other thing is then, is this good God is good to you. I mean, there are cosmic implications to God being good, but my friends, God never has forgotten about the individual person that he's made. You can know, regardless what you're facing in your life at this moment, you can know regardless your fears, your concerns, the things you're anxious about, the things that you are feeling, you can know that this great big God is in fact your shepherd. You can know that this great big God looks at you, cares about you, and he's going to be good to you. You can trust him. That's the kind of God that we serve. God is, in fact, I, I, do you mind saying it with me? You can say it after me, all right? God is infinite, personal, transcendent, imminent, omniscient, sovereign, and good. When you watch the news tomorrow, remember that. That's the kind of God you are sourced into. It's that kind of God. When you face the job and the challenges tomorrow on the job, if you have a relationship with that God, it's okay. It's, it, I promise you, it's going to be okay. I promise you, it's going to be okay. There are all kinds of things that people like for me to say from the pulpit during all the craziness going on in our world today. But what I feel like saying to you is God is still God. God is still God. God is still God. God is still God. You guys know that God doesn't live in Washington, D.C.? You guys know that? You know that the history of the world does not rotate around current events happening right now? Guys, have a bigger picture of a great big God who's working out his will through history. And somehow or another, by his grace, he's going to get it right. Thank you.